There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have the time to go to any of them. Or, you know, we're all locked down because it's the year 2020. We're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat. On Cinema Smorgasbord Presents Cinema Fantastica, we pick one of these festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at that festival to battle against each other. On this episode, we're heading to the 1991 edition of the Toronto International Film Festival and its Midnight Madness program with two somewhat forgotten horror films, Jean McNaughton's sci-fi horror satire The Borrower versus Tony Randall's Fangoria-produced vampire movie Children of the Night. So let's begin. Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre film festivals around the globe. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is my good pal Liam O'Donnell. But today, we are enemies, Liam, as we are tasked with pitting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see who reigns supreme. How are you doing today, Liam? Oh, I'm sorry, were you talking to me? Oh, my bad. Yeah. Now, one one thing before you tell me how things are going, and you, you keep rattling your coffee cup around, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that I no longer want to make reference to the larger world and the terrible things sure. happening within it. I was listening to or, uh, or actually reading online some people talking about how they're sick of podcasts that keep referring to the world situation. Oh, I'm right there with them. I My general feeling is if there's a fire... You really just want to put your head in the dirt and ignore it, and it'll just blow over. It's going to fucking blow over. Um, I have plenty of more personal tragedies to talk about, Doug, so we'll just focus on those. How about this one? Uh, I'm signed up for the Nightstream Film Festival. You know about this festival? Yes. Mm -hmm. And when I was signing up, there's all these things explaining how it works, and it's like, this movie will be made available at this time, and then you have until this date to watch the movie. It'll be available for you till this date. Once you start the movie, you have four hours to finish it. So, like, if you need to take a break or whatever like that. I thought, sure. I thought that's fine. I'm going to sign up for a real-ass badge, get access to ten movies, because over the course of a weekend, I think I can watch ten movies, or at least close to ten movies, and then, sure. of course, I'm supporting the fest with my money and all that kind of thing. Well, turns out, more than half the movies I signed up for have a little addendum that I didn't notice. Do you know what that addendum says, Doug? That you can't stop once you start. Oh, no. That this oh. movie, unlike other movies that are less good, will only <laughs> be available at the appointed time and will not be made available oh. for later streaming. Oh, boy. And I didn't notice that because I just was picking movies based upon if I had heard of them, if the description sounded interesting, or if, honestly, my co-host for uh, my show Horror Business, Justin Lore, was going to be watching them to review. And I thought, wouldn't our show be better if I watched the same movies that Justin watched? Only, uh-huh. only you know, Justin doesn't have children or a wife or really anything going on other than watching horror movies. And so... You know, he's going to get to watch all these movies when they're made available, and that's literally impossible for me. So I kind of wasted my money. And it was, I want to put it on them, but it's not on them, it's on me. I didn't read closely enough. I could have picked less well known movies or movies that Justin wasn't going to watch, and I wouldn't have had this issue. But most of the movies I picked are only available at their specified time. So, you know, I kind of shot myself in the foot on this one. It does seem a little unreasonable. 
with the idea of virtual festivals to have to be sitting down at a very particular time, especially for this particular festival, which is not region locked, I don't believe. So nope. people like people in Canada. Yep. Yeah. So I feel I feel also upset. I'm I'm right there with you. I'm gonna I mean, we should be upset because that's what this entire podcast is about. So mad. Right? It's these it's these festivals that we can't go to or now are not convenient to us in terms of the times yeah. that they take place. Yeah. So we have to catch up decades down the line. Well, and I, I got to say, like, I, I hate to admit it because I've always thought that an online festival. I know. Uh, look, I'm as committed to the theater as every, anyone else, everyone else, whoever else. Bahamba. I'm as committed to the theater <laughs> as most rational people. But I've always thought an online festival is not such a bad idea and that it would be easy for me to participate. But now I'm thinking because hmm. this is the second festival I've had trouble accessing that. uh I can only commit to watching movies if I can physically be there, apparently, <laughs> because if there's any restrictions placed on it and I got to be at home, it's just not going to happen, Doug. I'm not going to see the movies. And it, it, it bums me out. I'm very bummed. Well, think about how difficult it is for me, Liam. I have to nail you down once a week for these recordings. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> there's more to say about that, but I'm going to leave it unsaid. <laughs> What you need to do, and I'm just giving you some advice as a friend. Oh, God. You need to jettison all this baggage in your life. <laughs> I hate you, Doug. <laughs> Glad that no one in your immediate circle listens to our podcast. But before we talk about, Liam, these two films that we're going to be discussing today, I'm actually really excited about both of them. I want to talk a little bit about the festival proper, because on our most recent episode... Liam, we talked about a film festival that you attended. I did. Yeah, and this time we're talking about a festival that I've attended. The Toronto International Film Festival probably needs no introduction. It's one of the largest and most prestigious film festivals on the planet, and attracts about half a million people annually in years that are not 2020. Uh, the festival itself launched in 1978 with its Midnight Madness portion, which is what we're focusing on today, which is dedicated to cult and horror and science fiction and other genre-type movies. They uh, started running that in 1988. It's called Midnight Madness because they have screenings at 11.59 every night during the festival. Uh, for the, the first near decade, it was programmed by Noah Cowan, who we're going to uh, be talking about part of his reign today, uh, before Colin Geddes cemented it as one of the most vital parts of the festival during his 20-year reign, and it's currently programmed by friend of this show, Peter Kaplowski. But Liam, for this particular episode, we decided... Uh, after much struggle, to choose the year 1991 to talk about. What do you remember about 1991? Liam, is it the year the punk broke? <laughs> I wouldn't have known because in 1991, I wasn't really <laughs> interested. Uh, 91, 91, I was what? I was 12. I was 12 years old. What grade are right. you in it when you're 12, Doug? I have no sense anymore. I think it would be like, because I think like 12, 13 is when you start going into what we call in uh, Canada junior high meaning grade seven so maybe six seven something like that yeah those are some of the worst years of my life so that's what i remember yeah me too yeah it's the awful time to be alive i remember uh, um, also from that time period getting into like uh hip-hop for the for maybe not the first time but the first time being actually like committed like it was always a part of the soundscape that you don't really care about when you're a kid but you hear uh but by 12 i was like hey mom you have to go get me these tapes tapes doug you mean these tapes? These tapes. I need. Okay. I need Fear of a Black Planet. I need LL Cool J oh, Bad. Right. I need uh, CNC Music Factory. <laughs> uh, no, but like Tone Loke <laughs> for sure. 
I like it's like uh, twelve year old Liam O'Donnell. I need to get into hip hop. Yes, fear of a black planet. Like no embarrassing ones at all. All right, even Tone Loke isn't that embarrassing. Was your? I mean, I'm trying to think of the most embarrassing possible hip hop album from 1991 for you to possibly be purchasing. Oh, MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice, uh, oh, any yeah, of that. No, of and I had those too, but it, just again. This is the same thing as with punk. The fact that I had good things mixed in with the bad Are you fucking things, eating again while we're recording? 100%. I have, <laughs> Doug, I have diabetes. I got to live my life. Uh, the fact that I liked good things as well as bad things when I got into these forms of music was purely because of my friends. So the same friends who were, by the way, just as excitedly buying the MC Hammer tape as I was, though it was the single at first and not the full album, they were the ones saying like, oh, also you need to get this Public Enemy tape or I had, you know, NWA or uh, what was the other one that I was really stoked on? Well, and then in uh, more like 93 or 94 was when I was getting like, uh, DOS effects and Ice Cube and all that kind of stuff. So I had a lot of cool stuff. I'm totally fine with that. But if you think I wasn't also listening to Tone Loke, then like that's just not real, right? You know, like that's not, I'm not going to pretend that I only got Fear of a Black Planet and I wasn't also like, I need this vanilla ice tape, man. Ice Ice Baby is like, that's that. I need this Technotronic tape. <laughs> I got to Technotronic. Remember Technotronic? Yo, DJ, spin that wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Believe me, 1991 was uh, a year I was particularly focused on terrible music, so I know all of this. Um, my 1991 might have been right around the time that my family first got CDs, and I Whoa, can remember that's so some early. Of... Yeah, maybe so. I remember that uh, that my brother. Uh, sign up to the Columbia House uh, thing where you get a, like six or seven CDs, and the ones he chose included Wilson Phillips, Amy Grant, <laughs> Wow, West West End Girls. If anyone knows what that is, oh, I do. Uh, and, oh, and um, uh, Extremes Pornography. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that record. Yeah. <laughs> So we only had terrible music playing in my household for probably the, the following four or five years um, before I was like, you know what? I'm Doug Tilly. I'm going to break out of this terrible cocoon of music and start listening to cool punk music like my for- future friend, Liam O'Donnell. Well, my first CDs were all punk CDs. <laughs> and because you have bad taste in punk, you'll think I'm showing off. But I think this is actually embarrassing because when uh-huh. I went, my first CDs I got were Green Day Dookie. <laughs> Whatever that offspring record was that blew up, and uh, Sex Pistols, never mind the bollocks. Those were my first three CDs, and um, it's. I was so punk. I had never mind the bollocks on cassette tape. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of my cassettes before that weren't punk, except for the ones people dubbed me. Like all the cassettes I had that were rock cassettes, which is the most obvious grunge. You know, I had like that Stone Temple Pilots record and the Nine Inch Nails John and all that stuff. We're so old, Liam. Rollins band. I was a big Rollins. <laughs> you know how much my mind exploded when I realized the guy from Black Flag was Rollins? Like, I was such a Rollins f- band fan before I understood who he was in the grand scheme of music. And I had been listening to Black Flag for a while before I put it together. <laughs> well, going back to the year 1991, in its context with... Tiff Midnight Madness, Liam. Here's the films that showed in that year's Midnight Madness. Uh, that includes two of the movies, obviously, that we're going to be talking about today. I'll skip those for now. They are they are The Devil's Daughter by Michelle Suave, 
The Arrival by David Schmoller, Motorama by Barry Schills, Guilty as Charged by Sam Irvin, The Raid by Chewie Hark, Blood and Concrete by Jeffrey Reiner, and a ghost story, uh, sorry, a Chinese ghost story three by Ching Su Tung. So I have to be honest, like I'm pretty dialed in when it comes to genre cinema. I haven't really heard of a lot of those movies. The movie that I chose for us to watch is really the only one on the list that I really knew anything about. I didn't know anything about any of these movies, and I didn't choose Children of the Night because I knew anything about it. Basically, <laughs> I wanted us to do horror because it's October, so I picked a horror yeah. movie. That was my entire thought process. I mean, of these, I know, I, I've seen the first two uh, Chinese ghost story movies. I have not seen part three. Uh, I'm a big fan of Chewie Hark, but I haven't seen The Raid. Uh, and so I rec- and I, I, I love most of M- uh, Michelle Suave's movies. Um, and in fact, I've seen all of them from around this time period, except The Devil's Daughter. So yeah, we picked the movies on this list that were clearly horror. I don't, um, I don't want to get too much on a tangent here, but who is Michelle Suave? Would I know? You've probably seen, I would imagine, Cemetery Man, a.k.a. Oh. Del Monte Del okay, so or the, church. The, the guy who sits next to the girl who pukes out all her that's right the that Dead. is a yeah, that's a hundred percent correct <laughs> good i we we literally just talked about him on on cinepunks but i i can never remember his name i we just remember him as the cemetery man guy well i mean this does transition well liam into why you did choose the movie children of the night by tony randall outside of the fact that you knew it was a horror movie it was the first one on the list uh-huh. That that does simplify things. <laughs> I'm just saying like uh, I I just looking at the name, I knew it was a vampire film. You know, uh, I'm like what are the chances that the movie Children of the Night is not a vampire film? Low, low, low chances. Very low. So I said, let's do that. Uh, and then after I chose it, I looked it up and was like, oh, you know, it seems like people talked about it a little bit. I hear it's a gory vampire film, which I like that as opposed to like a very sort of uh you know, um, classy vampire film. <laughs> so, did the director appeal to you at all? No, no, not at all. No, who's Tony Randall? Well, he directed Hellraiser too. I think that's probably for genre fans the the thing he's most known for. He also directed the movie Ticks, which I enjoy very much. Huh. I mean, maybe I'm alone here, Doug. But when I think of Hellraiser two, I think of it as just the Hellraiser Clive Barker didn't direct. And thinking about who actually directed it has never really come into my brain before. Well, how about this? He also directed the live-action version of Fist of the North Star. Oh, no. You mean our <laughs> you mean our Patreon episode that never happened? <laughs> It'll happen eventually. Uh, the movies are just waiting to be watched. Uh, once I mean, we- I did. I watched them both. <laughs> well, just keep remembering what happened there. The film I chose... The Borrower was directed by John McNaughton, who I knew best and still know best as the director of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Liam. Also so the director- I, I didn't know that going in, and I found the Henry references utterly confusing until I looked it up. <laughs> I was like, why are we talking about Henry in this movie? What's happening? Uh, John McNaughton, of course, also went on to direct uh, Mad Dog and Glory, the, the, the Bill Murray, Robert De Niro uh, odd film, and uh, and of course, Wild Things where you get to see Kevin Bacon's danger in it, his bacon. 
it's weird knowing that uh, other than the borrower, I've watched a lot of this person's movies and never made the <laughs> Mad because you said Mad Dog and Glory like joking around, and I was like, man, when I was a kid, I I love that movie. Like I was obsessed with it as a kid. I have it on VHS somewhere, and that's an original copy. And uh, Wild Things, I wasn't obsessed with, but I definitely watched it a few quite a few times. And it's many uh, straight to video sequels as well. I'm sure never watched one of the sequels actually. Oh, and I mean that's your loss, I suppose, Liam. Now, yeah. Liam, it seems like we've we've chosen these films somewhat willy nilly. Particularly you, you just had no idea what you were getting into. Nope, so, not, not a one. I'm very curious to see our response to both and whether these are hidden gems from the year 1991. Uh, I think Liam will take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about John McNaughton's The Borrower from the year 1991. Right after this. <laughs> Thanks to Warlock and Hellraiser, the horror genre is hot again. Isn't that something? Now, from the critically acclaimed director of Henry, portrait of a serial killer, comes The Borrower, a new kind of horror film. There ain't nobody gonna believe this. An alien serial killer from another universe comes to Earth. You are weird. Weird. And Ray Don Chong is the detective who must find him. Oh my god. Not since Reanimator has there been such a movie. The Borrower, the ultimate head trip. Kinda cute. Kinda. John McNaughton's The Borrower. Aliens punish one of their own by sending him to Earth. The alien is very violent, and when the body he occupies is damaged, he is forced. <laughs> To find another, uh, that's a quite a succinct summary of the movie <laughs> The Borrower from the year 1991, as mentioned, directed by John McNaughton, uh, director of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Similarly to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, The Borrower was filmed uh, a number of years before it was actually released. Now, Henry was filmed in 1986, but didn't get t- released until 1989. The Borrower, I believe, was filmed in 1988, did not come out until 1991, all sorts of distribution issues that actually continue to this day. The Borrower has never been, I believe, uh, officially released in North America on DVD or Blu-ray and has kind of uh, fallen into uh, legal hell. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult to track down. It was written by Mason Nage and Richard Fire. Richard Fire wrote Henry's Portrait of a Serial Killer with John McNaughton, but uh, was probably known best as an actor. Uh, and passed away just a few years ago as well. Uh, this movie stars the great Ray Don Chong, Liam. Um, as a cop, Diana Pierce. Uh, Tom Tolles is, I think, the highlight of the entire movie as Bob Laney. We also have Antonio Fargus here as well as a, uh, um, a, a homeless man named Julius. But really, this movie, at its heart, is sort of a satire about the United States of America, one of my favorite genres, uh, as this alien creature who has basically been sentenced to Earth as punishment because it's such a terrible place, uh, has to stumble around switching heads because that's also the the kind of core of the movie that this creature has to continually be ripping the heads off people and replacing it onto his own neck uh, to stay alive um, for for reasons that are not really uh, explored in any detail. And he's being hunted down by these uh, disbelieving cops all the while. But yeah, it's kind of a satirical look at... Uh, at least big city uh, U.S. of A. and uh, all of the terrible things that are going on within those cities. And hey, not much has really changed, I guess, since the year 1988 when this was filmed. Liam, what are your thoughts 
on uh, a very interesting movie and a very violent movie, 1991's The Borrower. It's weird to feel nostalgia for a movie you've never seen before. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> this, as soon as it starts, you're like, oh, here we are. And and not for 1991, by the way, though I, though I will say some of what is in this film kind of continues into the 90s. This is such a late 80s horror film Very much that so. when you revealed to me that it was filmed in 88, I was like, oh, okay. That, that explains it. Um, it has just a, a certain kind of aesthetic. It has a certain style. Um, it is a, it'll be a little distracting for anyone from Chicago because the film is set in Chicago, but I guess somewhat famously, uh, none of it was filmed in Chicago, uh, <laughs> despite the plans of the director. Uh, they, he had planned to film the whole thing in Chicago and then had to cancel all of the shooting and move everything to LA. So, um, LA for Chicago is really not as seamless as one might think. And, uh, but, I mean, if you've never been there, you probably won't notice. But it was funny to me, like, oh, this is great. I'm watching a movie set in my new hometown. And it took me to about halfway <laughs> through to be like, oh, guess what? None of this looks familiar to me. I must not know Chicago very well. And, nope, not my fault. It wasn't me at all. <laughs> um, yeah, it's – it's I to, this is going to sound weird because we're about to talk about maybe the tone of the film being sure. a little dark. But to me, this is a lot of fun. I had fun watching this. I laughed at multiple uh, opportunities to do so. A lot of the jokes hit. There's a couple of decisions we're going to talk about later that I think are poor ones that are unnecessarily cruel. Sure. But for the most part, I think it works for me. Um, I will say, like a lot of 80s lower budget horror, like and by 80s, I mean later 80s uh low budget horror it's a little languid it kind of feels like um because it's satirical and humorous it doesn't need any actual tension there's very few parts in the movie where you're actually concerned about what's going to happen that doesn't make it not entertaining i think the police procedural parts that they keep going back to is is meant to kind of maintain that tension but it sometimes feels like it comes from a different movie entirely exactly and and they don't do that they don't maintain it like i mean just straight up the movie moves at a languid pace. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't so amusing, if it wasn't, let's say this is the same movie, same pace, but it's not funny. It's just supposed to be straight horror. This would be fucking torture. It would be a torturous film. <laughs> but because it is funny and it has some interesting gore and it has some weird moments and it just maintains its level of entertaining the entire time, it's okay that like for a movie that is... In a way, kind of like a. It, it, on paper, you could say this movie is similar to like The Hidden, but it lacks even a second of tension that's in The Hidden. You right. know what I mean? Like it's not even comparable in any way to The Hidden because it's so relaxed. You know, a movie in which so many people die and that there's both a murderous serial killer alien and another serial killer just to add another layer of, of, of uh, danger. Uh, it's crazy how little really goes on in the film. There's a lot of relaxing in a sense, um, but you know, with eventual head explosions and eating of human flesh. So uh, I liked it. I found it. I found it really. I don't know. It, it, it was comforting almost, even if I don't know if I'd put it on like a best ever list or anything like that. But um, I would definitely recommend it to people, especially those of us who are um, nostalgic for a certain era of cable horror. It uh, it certainly I, I know it is not a movie that I hear talked about very often, probably because of its distribution issues. But it certainly is one worthy of rediscovery, if only because of some of the 
the stranger elements of it and some of the more violent effects. I mean, this movie starts with basically a intergalactic criminal in a bright white room being sent to Earth by a giant bug. And then we see them arrive at Earth. And as soon as they do, the, the criminal beats the shit out of the, it's the, so good. the alien creature. They run into two hunters, one of them played by Tom Towles. And uh, he... They try to help him. They shoot the uh, alien because they think it's the bad guy. And then the fucking dude's head just explodes <laughs> in front of them it, as a way to kick off a movie. I'll tell you, I was uh, I was on board very, very quickly. Certainly, certainly. Now, when it comes to those satirical elements uh, that make up quite a bit of the film, uh, you know, this this creature that seems barely functional or conscious, this alien with its new head and sunglasses on. Uh, basically, is is he? It's kind of like a being there situation to some extent. Uh, he's he's brought through the world of this of this large city. Uh, he encounters soup kitchens and homeless people and uh, all sorts of of um, intentional or unintentional violence. Liam, I have a question for you, which is: Is this movie too cynical about the world of 1991 or 1988 when it was made? Um, it really does take a look at, I mean, again, the concept of it is that Earth is so terrible that it's like a prison for this alien. Um, and certainly in the view of, if you've ever seen Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is a very cynical movie in a lot of ways, does this film, I mean, does it work for you on that level, on that satirical level? Or was it a little too cynical? I mean, talk to me a little bit about this, Doug. Um, because, yeah, it... I did find it a bit cynical, but what's the point of doing satire if you're not going to be cynical? Like, I don't see it, it, it. It's an art form whose entire tone is uh, relatable to sarcasm. So how does it work to be uh, an optimist and make a satire? I just yeah, don't I, think that's a thing. I guess, I guess because the movie itself has a very comical tone for much of it, it does kind of have this tonal whiplash that occurs uh, – We'll talk about it. Actually, let's talk about it right now. The the human serial killer in this movie uh, also sexually assaults a police officer in it. Um, and it's treated fairly seriously, even though he then event, uh, immediately dresses as her, which is kind of conflating cross-dressing and, and his actions, which, of course, is a really another cynical, terrible and uh, untrue thing. Um, and it's it the movie, I think it takes its satirical marks... Uh, you know, from like a brother from another planet type thing where it's trying to be clever and fun, but it really does, you know, it does kind of lean heavily into the idea that Earth is kind of hell and it's, you can't get ahead. And I mean, these are all accurate things, but uh, it kind of wallows in them. And then it ends on a really dour and uh, negative note as well. Yeah, I mean, it ends with that the government would screw up managing a uh, deadly, infectious, in this case, uh, creature. But, uh, you know, we, we've seen that recently that, yeah, the governments are bad at managing things. I'm <laughs> Look, I think that the sexual assault scene, and that was what I was referencing earlier for folks yeah. who, are, who are listening, is utterly unnecessary. It is, it is, to me, that I didn't even think of that as cynical. I thought of it as... Uh, an opportunistic thing for a director to try to be edgy uh and uh if it is cynical it's a bit of a cynical reference to his other movie because uh that scene besides being you know it, it tastefully done in some sense it's also then undone 
whatever tastefulness he uses in not showing us this horrifying image of this assault is undone by him having one of the more uh, direct jokes of the movie during that time yeah. by having an advertisement for Henry play. Yeah. Uh, sort of suggesting like, oh, you thought Henry was bad. Look what I can do now. And that level of edgelord, uh, you know, pre-fedora culture is exactly what you don't want to think the director of Henry is capable of. Because if Henry is not uh, a totally... You want to imagine the director of Henry... To be like Cronenberg, like the reason you can kind of flow with Cronenberg doing anything he wants is because it it feels like the man is incapable of emotions. And so you're kind of like, well, he's not enjoying this because he doesn't enjoy anything. He's just showing us this thing um, to have this guy doing this like self-referential wink at the camera during an assault recontextualizes all of Henry for me and makes me like not like Henry as much because I'm like. Bro, did you think you were being like you were you were freaking out the normies? Is that what you thought you were doing at that movie? Because uh, that's a bummer, man. That's a real fucking bummer. And so, like it, it outside of that scene, I don't care about any of the cynicism in this movie. I think some of it is not particularly insightful. Like I don't think it's a big revelation to be like, oh, it's really hard to be homeless, and some homeless people are dealing with mental illness, or you know, that the world is so dark, it's probably easier to be on the streets for some people. That's not a huge revelation. That's like a, yeah, obvious, obviously. So like, whatever. But it, it also doesn't bum me out. I wasn't like, I can't believe he's portraying the world this way where uh, these doctors are terrible and the cops suck <laughs> at their job and FBI is like a useless organization. And there's, 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 I guess obvious... maybe, maybe the question Liam, is, have you gotten so cynical that this movie is just meeting, meeting you halfway there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anything, I think you could accuse this movie of not having nearly sharp enough satire. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's fine. It doesn't, none of that bothered me. All the only thing that really got under my skin was the the way that not only just that this assault is in the movie, but that it is for no reason. It's 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 all it, all it does is help us know that this guy is a bad dude. I didn't need that. We already had a scene of him trying to murder a random uh, elderly uh, woman, so I don't need more of his awfulness to believe in it. And the dude is just there to like mildly complicate the plot. He isn't important <laughs> in any real way. So like. Why? Why do I need this at all? It, yeah, that that you take that away, and I'm like, yeah, this movie's tone is perfect, and I have no problem with it. I mean, I guess if you, and again, I'm not trying to justify it in any way, but that same serial killer later tries to attack Radon Chan when she's sleeping, and I guess it's to add that extra level of threat. But again, it's just one of those kind of unpleasant shorthands that. That you see a lot in movies of, well, I mean, almost movies of almost any era. Uh, thankfully, we're mostly right. moving away from it. But before we suggest that this movie is kind of dour and serious, there is a scene, my favorite scene in the entire movie, where, again, this alien has to keep switching heads. He encounters a dog at the home of this doctor who he's taken over. And while we don't see him kill the dog, thankfully, uh, we do know that he <laughs> replaces his head with a dog head. And is then accosted by the lead singer of a rock band that is filming a music video directed by Imagine Amick from uh, from Twin Peaks. And then he tries to attack them with his dog head and they take a gun off a gun rack in the room and blast him to uh, quote unquote death. Of course, 
just alien doesn't stay down uh, from that time. But I mean, there are some real wacky shit going on in this movie. Oh yeah, they really want to also just play up the mechanics of this thing. Like every head explosion matters, every transition grossness sort of matters. The scene with the doctor eating the other body, like they, they, the, I never really the, understood the cannibalism aspect of this. To be totally honest, I don't. So I didn't understand the mechanics of it at first, and it, I didn't realize he was just taking the heads, and then the head yeah. would help mm-hmm. the rest of the. I I thought the head blo- exploded, and then the thing crawled out and went into a new that, body. That's what I thought as well, because they don't really explain it well at the beginning. Right. It, it took a while to reveal, like, no, no, no. He puts a new head on the same body, and then the rest of the body transforms to match the head. Right. Okay, that's that's very cool, but they should have done more to establish that early on. But that then complicates the cannibalism. He's just hungry. He just needs like dead human flesh or something. It, that part is very confusing. Why after he switches the heads, he also nibbles a little bit on the person. <laughs> I uh, I do have to say that if this is a movie I would have encountered in the 90s, like on VHS, I would have loved it. This is exactly the sort of thing that I would have been like really excited to discover. And I think a lot of people did discover it that way. And probably uh, when I do mention this to mov- to movie fans who have heard of it, Generally, the feeling towards it is very, very positive. I do have to say that I liked, I liked the alien portions of this a lot more than I enjoyed the police procedural aspects with Ray Don Chong, uh, who I think is a really good actress, though I think she's a little bit miscast here. Uh, and honestly, it, it it's kind of a strange relationship she has. So it's her; she's a, a cop, and she's paired with this this like kind of older, more cynical cop <laughs> and they work together to solve crimes and all those portions when it goes back to them it really does kind of feel like it's out of a different movie um and especially because she's obviously the focus and he is just kind of this secondary character who's who's just a collection of cliches what did you think of the police procedural part of the movie it didn't it it didn't bother me i was into those sections especially because the movie wants to have a bit of an urban grit and the police aspect adds that texture. On the other hand, I do think that the movie doesn't make enough effort to connect. They figure out what's going on so late in the film that they, they do feel a little superfluous. If, if they had, if, if, Ray Don Chong's character had figured out what was going on or had some inclination, at least, of what was going on earlier in the film, Right. then I think those parts would have made more sense. But instead, again, this is tied to the secondary serial killer. We've already got an alien serial killer. We need another... I guess he's not necessarily a serial killer, but a, you know... uh, I think, actually, they say he's a serial rapist as well as a Mm, drug dealer. Yeah. Because we have his character, it's another layer, and we have to spend time... We have to have an arc for that character before we've even dealt with the alien. It just felt like the movie was trying to do too much to, to me. It felt like the movie was trying to do too much. I mean, I guess it's supposed to be reinforcing the idea that this is the kind of place that they would send this alien criminal because there are people just as bad on the planet already. So, you know, he would fit. We spend a lot of time though, Doug, it's a lot of time with this dude. Again, this is all sounding very harsh. I enjoyed this movie, and the only thing I would significantly change about it is that sexual assault. But I think a version of this movie without that that plot and more focused on trying to find this alien would be a slightly better movie. But overall, I think the movie is very enjoyable. Like I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying it's bad. It's it's really great. Um, I just think that that 
is an unnecessary element of the plot. Apparently, the original script for this movie was much more violent than the uh, version that uh, that we get. Uh, there's some really great Kevin Yeager effects in this, by the way, for people who are fans of his work. Uh, and again, this is a movie that isn't uh, commonly available. So uh, if you're into kind of gory effects, there's quite a bit of it in it in this movie already, uh, even though it's toned down, I guess, from the original script. I guess it, <laughs> when you make a movie about people who have to pull other people's heads off and put them on their own necks, there's a certain amount of violence that you should expect. But it really, I mean, it delivers in that category. I I did find the ending to be a little choppy. It seems really kind of strange. So the movie ends uh, with the cops um, killing the alien. It ends up in a morgue, but of course it keeps getting up. And off screen it ends up, of course, the alien switches its head with the other serial killers had the human one and we get a final kind of showdown between Radon Chong's character um, though she's not the one who actually finally puts him down some FBI agents come in and start you know blasting away until they they figure he's dead for good of course she knows better we already talked about it a little bit Liam what did you think of the ending of the movie I get the zinger aspect of it, you know, like, oh, he's not dead yet. FBI sucks. They screwed it up. <laughs> but uh, but it comes across a little rushed, not in a way that ruins the movie for me, but in a way that's like, so you guys ran out of money. Right. Or, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like they were like, all right, we got to fucking end it. Here we go. And uh, and I didn't love that. I, I feel like they could have done something else more with the ending. But on the other hand. It's fine. It works. It's not. It's not perfect, but it didn't bum me out. Uh, I mean, I, I feel very similarly. It's. It, it just. It. It's not the best capper, but it does fit the tone of the rest of the movie. It just feels choppy when you're watching it. It's just like it, you suddenly realize there's ten minutes left, and they just got to clue everything up. And it's like, hey, I, I, it looks like the alien's dead. What about that serial killer guy? Okay, now he's out with the head, and they're gonna shoot him a thousand times, and then the movie's just kind of, kind of fade away uh it is i did find it kind of ridiculous that they play up the relationship between radon chong and her partner and then they kill him in this like completely uninteresting way he basically just gets choked by this creature and killed um but yeah no it, look the ending doesn't bother me that much it just felt like it wasn't the best capper of a movie that at its core is so wacky and strange and i was hoping it would lean a little heavier on that I do have a question for you before we finish talking about The Borrower, Liam, which is whether this movie is a hidden gem. <laughs> that for this particular purpose. Um, because I do think there are people who have a lot of love for this movie, but sometimes, and you probably have found this, in genre circles, people sometimes pump up a movie that isn't as well-known simply because they're trying to make it more well-known. And uh, while I don't think that this sits next to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer as one of the great horror movies of the 1980s, um, does it belong in the category of movies that people should check out that that uh, maybe <laughs> are not consistently great, but at least very good? I think so. I think I would say that... Um... <laughs> how to put this if it, it, the style of horror movie this sort of like uh gritty urban later 80s thing that has a bit of a humorous tone um it's kind of satirical if that sounds like something that appeals to you i think this is worth seeking out i think for folks you know i don't think a lot of people watching henry are picturing that this dude's next movie is going to be fucking funny yeah there's nothing funny about Henry. There's no moment of humor to me in Henry. And so uh, if you're obsessed with Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, 
don't seek this movie out. I don't think this is gonna, you know, necessarily <laughs> unless be you like want a, unless you want to appreciate the wink references to Henry in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I just think that uh, it it's not that kind of movie. Um, but but I don't know that I would say like, oh my god, you know, I need to petition Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome right now to like put this out on Blu-ray because it's like a a lost you know uh, masterpiece. It's not quite that, but you know, I think if you're a programmer for an all night horror fest and you're looking for a 11 p.m. Uh, movie, yeah. this is a. I think this is a sol- This is a knock it out of the park with this one. I think this is something that'll keep people awake. That they'd have a lot of fun watching. That a lot of people probably haven't seen. Uh, that they would be really appreciative of getting a chance to see. Yeah, I think that 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 encompasses it. I that I think very very well. It's a movie that I do hope that in the near future does get a proper release. I think it's deserving of it. I also think that. You know, it's so funny to think that John McNaughton had so much difficulty with his his films with from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which eventually found all sorts of love and respect once it was released. But it took years, and this one, of course, also sat on the shelf, uh, but probably but never really found that same reputation. But then, you know, his follow up to this rather small alien satire horror movie was a big Hollywood movie with Robert De Niro and Bill Murray in it. And like because of how long this sat on the shelf, it meant that two years after this movie finally did show up on VHS, he was already making this Hollywood movie. It just seems like a weird trajectory if you don't know how difficult it was for, to get these films released. Yeah, I don't... How did that... I don't understand that transition at all, actually. Oh, I'm glad that you feel like you have some insight on it, but like... I mean, here's the deal. I, I wouldn't even just say as far as the the status of it going from this to Mad Dog and Glory uh, on the sort of a, a income level or a budget level. I'm just saying, how did he make Henry, the borrower, Mad Dog and Glory? It's like he had a psychotic break every few years and they had to do something. <laughs> to- it just doesn't feel like the same human could make these three movies, let alone whatever else he did. You know, does yeah. that make sense? Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, I mean, I you do see it sometimes, right? Where someone will make something particularly serious, and I guess particularly because he had made Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and it it had not gotten much of a response because of its difficulty getting distribution. So I guess he was like, well, I guess I'll do something really different. <laughs> but it is strange to think that when Henry gained its reputation as one of the great, maybe great movies of the 1980s, he used that to make like a crime comedy drama with. <laughs> with Robert De Niro and Bill Murray. It's just kind of unusual. It's strange, but I I I don't know. Maybe there's maybe if we watched all these together, we would see the threads mm. of the connection there. Well, speaking of unusual, Liam, we're gonna talk about a movie that I think is even less well known than 1991's The Borrower. That is the Fangoria produced Children of the Night from the year nineteen ninety one. We'll talk about that right after this. They are the sons of evil. They are the daughters of darkness. They were born when hell began to burn. In the classic tradition of Nosferatu and Dracula comes a terrifying story of the undead and the innocent souls they must seduce to survive. 
that the only way to help them is to find the source of the vampires. We are their prey. He is their lord. They are his children. Children of the night. A school teacher teams up with a priest to stop a town being overrun by vampires. It's 1991's Children of the Night, directed by Tony Randall, who Doug informs me did Hellraiser 2, whatever, I don't care. Uh, apparently uh, written by 12 people. Is that what this is? What's going on here? So a lot of them are story credits, the screenplay oh. by Nicholas Falacci. By the way, I just want to bring it up because I forgot to put it into our notes. The creator of the television show Numbers. You know that movie, that show Numbers? about nope. Uh, nope. It's uh, got the guy from Northern Exposure. Nope. Uh, I think Manny Patinkin was on it for a while. Numbers? Nope. nope. All right. Please continue. All right. Uh, starring, well, this is a stretch. Starring Karen Black. And by starring, <laughs> we mean she's the name in the movie, but she's only in it for a short period of time. Uh, Peter Deleuze. Where do I know Peter Deleuze from? I think it's Peter DeLuise because I believe DeLuise. it's the son of oh, Dom of DeLuise. Dom DeLuise. I but think where you, else do I know him, though? Like I've He was on Stargate, I think. Uh, was he on? Stargate? Oh, and he was on 21 Jump Street, which is probably where you There it is. It's from. the chunky dude from 21 Jump Street. That's how I remember him. Uh, Amy Dolan's Maya McLaughlin, uh, Evan McKenzie, other people. Um, well, Garrett Morris, s- you got to bring up. Oh, right. Garrett Morris. My bad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. We're in the process of bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're bringing it up. Um, uh, some notes about the movie. Uh, Karen Black and Garrett Morris. They were the first and only choices for their roles. I appreciate that. Shot in 26 days. It is a Fangoria production, so I guess that's not a big surprise. Um, the school of the flagpole on top is actually a feed store. I don't care about that. Uh, one of three films <laughs> released by Fangoria. Kind of feels you know, like you're reading these facts for the first time in the notes I put together. Oh, one hundred percent. I actually read through other stuff, but I didn't read these. Cause I thought, oh, you know, I'll get to them when I get to them. Um, uh, Fangoria in the '90s made three movies. Uh, the other two were Severed Ties from 1992, which I have seen, and Mind Warp from 1991, which I believe I own on DVD and I've never watched. Is it good, Doug? It I, I have seen that one. And I here's the thing. In the mid-90s, I was obsessed with Bruce Campbell, so I would watch anything that he was in. I right. would seek it out. Right. So that's the reason I saw Mind Warp. And I remember liking it quite a bit. I was not a Fangoria guy growing up. Uh, it just wasn't available to me. Uh, I mean, I sure. was aware of it, but it just it wasn't. I think we may have even talked about this on another episode. But, uh, but certainly, its reputation preceded it. And when I saw that Mind Warp was produced by Fangoria, I was like, this is going to be like they're going to let loose on the gore. It's going to be so crazy. And it doesn't really. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really interesting visually, just like this movie is to a certain extent. But I was surprised at kind of how restrained they are uh, outside of a few elements. But we'll talk about that. Well, speaking of uh, gore and gooiness, I was surprised by this movie uh, and some of the decisions they made about these vampires and how they were going to uh, portray vampires and, and made some like kind of uh, interesting decisions when it comes to uh, the logistics and almost biology of vampires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doug, what did you think of Children of the Night? A I really, warrior production. <laughs> I really liked it. Uh, I'm surprised that considering it does have um, a fairly well-known director, at least in the horror circles, uh, that this movie doesn't have much of a profile um, because it does kind of envelop a lot of those 
80s vampire tropes, you know, the the, the Fright Night-ish type thing. It is a very lighthearted movie in a lot of ways. It, it also has a satirical bent, uh, maybe not as incisive, if you can call it that, as The Borrower, but it really is about kind of people who come from small towns and they're uh, trying to escape it and the idea that the whole town are kind of secretly vampires I, I, and that they have maybe this this horrible secret about a priest that's been molesting children. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of elements there, but it's played very, very lightly uh, and very kind of goofily as well. Um, Garrett Morris, I think, is really great in it. Uh, most of the other performances outside of Karen Black, I think, are pretty weak, um, including the lead, uh, Peter DeLuise's performance. I just think, boy, he just doesn't do anything for me. I think he's all right in other uh, roles here. Maybe it's the fact that Chunky uh, Twenty One Jump Street. You're not into him. Maybe it's but he the grew fact, a mullet. He does have quite a mullet in this movie, uh, and I am amused by the fact that the son of Dom DeLuise and the daughter of Mickey Dolenz are in this movie together. But the I do think the fact that one of the kind of central aspects is that he's attracted to this 17 year old who is apparently a was a student of his because he's a teacher in the movie. That's kind of weird as well. I don't not really a, a big straight up gross, and it's weird that they never acknowledge it in a film that is under the current about pedophilia. Yeah. It's uh, weird. It's weird, particularly because when it, the only time it's even kind of hinted at is when a cop pulls him over and her response to this teacher running off with someone who's been reported missing, a 17-year-old, is to basically be like, all right, you get along, buddy. I'll bring her home. That sort of thing. Like, like naughty, naughty. It's just, it, 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 in 2020 in particular, it plays really uh, weakly. I do really like how the vampires are presented, and I like the makeup on the vampires. And you were referring slightly to it, but just to explain it a little, KMB effects do the effects in this movie. And the vampires, they kind of cocoon themselves, and their lungs and esophagus go outside of their body and rest on top of their body so they kind of breathe outside. I don't really know why they have to do that. It doesn't really, uh, I don't think it's really explained in any detail, but it does have a really striking visual look and i like that the vampires themselves are kind of ugly and unpleasant and kind okay. of lean closer to the nosferatu type uh vampire i also like the aspect they have of them having these like blood bags like basically yeah similarly immortal uh people who have not been turned into vampires yet but they they live to feed the vampire yeah i think that's great and it's smart it's so much smarter than a uh, then the idea that like, well, now that you're a vampire, you just have to hunt humans for eternity and hope you don't fuck that up. It makes so much more sense to be like, I'm just going to keep this human alive as long as I can and just keep feeding on them. It's like there, there's something about that that I thought really kind of made sense. Uh, also, it gave an excuse to do more gross stuff, which I appreciated. <laughs> um and, you know, the idea of the vampires also like kind of, you know, that the one vampire lives in the water, I thought was pretty cool, too. Um, and I, I, I basically agree with I, I mean, I'm, I was messing with you a little bit, but I basically agree with everything you said that like um, I, I, I'm really kind of bummed on it, actually, because the movie would the movie's great in my mind. I really enjoyed it. It would be so much better with a more charismatic lead. Yeah. You know, there's just something about uh, DeLuise and his 21 Jump Street mullet that just isn't compelling. And it's it's weird. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, there's other people in the movie that kind of carry it. And I will say, like, um, uh, why did my brain just go away? Garrett uh, Morris? Yes. Thank you. Garrett Morris is just 
you know, every time you see him, even though it's this ridiculous performance, it's fun and whatever. Karen Black, I'm sure she was only on set for a day and she <laughs> destroys it. She's so good. Like stuff like that moves you along. Even I would say, speaking of Karen Black, the priest that was her lover. Which, by the way, the age difference there, no one acknowledges that. This is a film unconcerned with the actual ages of its actors, I feel like. <laughs> um, but the, the idea that the priest, that Karen Black is this, is the priest's sister-in-law that he had an affair with. Uh, how long ago for that girl to be his daughter? Like, when? how old were you when you did this, my, my man? Because you, you only look 30 in the movie. You don't look 50. Um, <laughs> but the point is, his performance, I thought was really good. In fact, so good that I started to wonder, is Deloise supposed to be ironic? Is he supposed to be playing this like... Uh, okay, so th there's parts of the film that... I, I put this later on for discussion, but I want to bring it up. Um, to what extent does this movie have the same satirical elements that The Borrower has? And I bring that up to s because, A, is the fact that he's with a 17-year-old a continuing joke, gag snipe on pedophilia in the catholic church since he was supposed to be a, a priest as well i no i don't think so uh and in fact i think even later on the idea that the quote-unquote priest um was a pedophile is sort of undercut by the idea that he was supposed to be have been a vampire all along so maybe oh he was... no 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 but that's i think part of the theme though that yeah that that when it when he is a vampire everyone instead assumes he's a pedophile because right. he's a priest right, right because right. it makes more sense for a priest to fuck kids than to live off their blood i mean certainly that, that, era, that i think that, is part of the thing that i mean that was i mean 1991 might have been the most news i mean if for a lot of people that's when they were start starting to become aware that this was like kind right. of a global phenomena so i think it's possible but no i really do think that the fact that she's 17 in the movie is it's not even a second thought that he's supposed to look like a pedophile when he's running away. Because the reason I was looking for this second layer of insight is because that would make sense of his performance. Like when he is on screen with his friend, the priest, it's one of those moments, and we've talked about this before, where you have two men who appear to be in two different movies. Yeah. And I and I, I and again, dude might just suck as an actor. And I'm okay with that because I don't actually have that fond of memories of Twenty One Jump Street. But is it some part of me was thinking, is it possible that there's some other work being done by him blubbering around the screen like a Blubber. ding dong? <laughs> he He's a he's it's not the the two things meld for me. His performance is shit and the character is written like shit yeah. and he makes stupid decisions that aren't even funny the whole movie to the point where I'm like, is this in, is this uh, intentional? Is he doing work here? Is there something happening because of the way this character is that we're supposed to get about the overall sort of narrative of the film? Even even the death of this pre I mean, th this dude has a classic like getting ready to fight evil moment, which he's like utterly ineffectual at. And in fact, the only reason they defeat the head vampire is this almost completely uh, happenstance driving the Jesus van into the church, which yeah. again the symbolism of smashing the church with the Jesus van and stabbing the vampire with the cross on the van. Like, uh, not that that isn't foreshadowed that something like that was going to happen, but it, it continually the film revolves around the inadequacy, inability, and failure of 
that 21 Jump Street such that I started to think it was part of the point of the movie. And so then I started to reevaluate his performance. Was he being instructed to be this much of a right. dingus? No, I mean, or is I think, he just I think, incapable of doing anything else? I think he's supposed to be the character we most relate to, right? A guy who's completely over his head that has to be first uh, very skeptical about what's going on and then eventually comes to believe it. But he never reaches that point that these characters usually do in horror movies where he becomes competent. At that right. moment where you would think he would reach that point where you have this kind of exposition dump where Garrett Morris talks about you know, flooding the church basement and all that sort of stuff. He then gets drunk and falls asleep at the core moment of the entire movie, which I think we're supposed to find funny and endearing, but it just makes him look all the more incompetent and and really ineffectual, which I guess in some ways isn't... It isn't bad because he is a character that, that doesn't appeal to me because it lets the movie focus on the female characters a little bit more, and Amy Dolan's character in particular... But it's uh, it does make him feel all the more useless, particularly in that final scene. Right. But like you said, he doesn't even come to the rescue at that point. Uh, maybe it's it's trying to undercut how those characters were normally presented in movies, but it does just make him feel kind of superfluous. I mean, to some extent, I'm doing a ridiculous thing because I'm arguing for authorial intent and ignoring <laughs> the impact. Yeah, you know, because I it was so bad that I began to think maybe it was bad on purpose. And and that does happen in movies. And that's, I don't think, a bad way to evaluate a movie. But in doing that, I'm ignoring how it worked for me, which is I never identified with this asshole. He was never endearing. And it was really the the only, for me, snag of an otherwise enjoyable film. I, one of the, one of the I, this is a mo- point that is somewhat nostalgic for me, but I wanted to bring it up to you. Uh, one of the other kind of like negative things about the film, but I find kind of endearing is this film has that classic nineties exposition explosion. (laughs) That's like, look guys, we've been doing so much fighting and blood and attacks and gore. We haven't had time to like set the context. So we need a couple of minutes here to just dump all the information so that this movie makes any sense. And then we'll move on with less dialogue. That's bad filmmaking. I'm willing to admit that's bad filmmaking. But it's such a staple of this kind of like 90s horror movie that I found it kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with this pace. I understand what's happening here. Uh, And I found it kind of comforting. How how did you feel about that aspect of the movie, Doug? I mean, we see that in a lot of low-budget horror movies. Uh, I don't think it's, again, I don't think this one's trying to be like a more comical take on that or or uh winky take of it i think it just legitimately is exactly what you said at some point you need the movie to make sense and the only way to do that is have garrett morris explain everything to the characters i think he's endearing enough of a character that it it still works and it's you know you know that you're setting up the big climax anyway so i i didn't feel too bad about it because i was ready to get to kind of the central vampire action at that point. So it wasn't so bad. Uh, But yeah, it certainly does stick out when watching the movie. Um, It's, it's, I I don't have any problem with the pace of the movie generally, uh, but by the time it gets to the ending and you kind of realize where you are, um, I was ready for it to kind of come to a head. Yeah, I think, I think I can agree with that. I will say um, the, (sighs) There is it's it. There aren't gags in it the way that there are some gags in the borrower, mm. but it, it there. But there is a lack of seriousness that I found endearing, especially 
combined with the level of gooiness to the movie, <laughs> um, there's just a feeling of like that they're having fun. And again, if it wasn't for uh, DeLuise, I feel like all of that would have combined to make this like an A-plus movie for me. I mean, the th- one thing, and I mean, this might make me sound kind of infantile, and, and it certainly would have been my thought process if I saw this back in like the mid-90s on VHS. This movie should be about twice as violent as it is. I mean, this movie just. You think so? I mean, it's 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 perfectly violent, but like even compared to some of the movies that it most resembles, like a maybe like a From Dust Till Dawn. Well, that maybe that's a bad example because it 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 that's a much higher profile and higher budgeted movie. But something like Fright Night or something like that, like this is a Fangoria movie. It's not really that violent, and I do feel like because of its lighter tone, maybe it didn't want to embrace that level of violence. But you know, I think about the fact that the next year after this. Peter Jackson's Brain Dead would come out, which also has a very comedic tone, but leans a lot heavier into the level of violence. I'm not look not at this point in my life do I crave gore in a lot of the violence, uh, sorry, in a lot of the horror movies that I watch. But this particular movie, I think, could have used a few more showcase scenes of just a lot of blood. I <laughs> mean, of flowing I, around. I I want to argue against you only to the extent that other growth. I think the vampires. And the lung thing is gross in yeah. and of itself. And mm-hmm. I think the the blood bags eating the leeches is gross in and of itself. But I, I, I think you're right. I mean, honestly, in some ways, the movie feels like not dissimilar in the way it's done to something like a Peter Jackson movie. If you told me that this was the same kind of movie but edited for TV, yeah, yeah. I'd believe you. And honestly, I kind of thought, did Doug get an edited for TV version of this movie? I'm, I'm not gonna lie, that crossed my mind. When that cop um, gets her throat slit and it's there's no blood at all coming out, it did it. It really did stick out to me. I'm like, K and B effects did the effects on this movie, but again, we also have to think back that even with a movie like this, which went straight to video, I think for the most part, uh, I don't know how much of a theatrical viewing it had outside of the TIFF screening, that. There was still, you know, this was still an era where there was a lot of restrictions in terms of what you could put into a movie, and some movies, particularly horror movies, got a closer inspection than others did. It's just, it's just in retrospect, it seems a little tame. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I that occurred to me, but I didn't think of it as like a knock on the movie. But the more I think about it, if you're gonna have such gooey very kind of like present vampires. And you're going to put Fangoria's name right on your cover, right? I mean, that's a, that's a part of it as well. You would think that then there'd be more, at least blood effects of some kind. So yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, again, that's not that there isn't any fun effects work in the movie. There is some fun effects work. Mm -hmm. It's not like whatever, but um, I agree that it's, you know, no one came here, to see the emotional range of uh, <laughs> Deloise. Everyone came here for a horror experience, and you're denying them an aspect of that, and I don't quite understand why. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. Still, I mean, I, 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 I think it's still pretty enjoyable, though, right? I had oh, a yeah. really Absolutely. good time with it. And I, I, I'm willing to accept that the writers of the script were not necessarily as smart as I want to give them credit for. Uh, they created numbers. Right, so they're not that smart. But I do want to say, I do think there's some relationship here between vampirism and pedophilia in relationship to priests. Yeah, And I think that that's a theme, even if they did it unintentionally, it works. I don't think you can see a vampire priest and not think about pedophiles. If you can, then you're from some other world. That's just me. <laughs> I see a vampire priest, I'm like, whoop, evil priest, probably fucks children. And the idea that he has a whole harem of kids that he is 
intimately sucking their blood like maybe he isn't abusing them but you know and it is some kind of commentary that this town has had this story forever but they transmuted this story of a vampire in or into a story of a pedophile yeah and that it was it was in some way less traumatic and more believable that it was a vampire or a pedophile rather but you know it, would that be true and, and what is the real difference there if he's feeding on children yeah he's still praying that, on that them. different Absolutely. yeah 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 so i just think that theme was pretty insightful even if it was unintentional and they actually just wanted to make a dumb vampire movie no i think i think, I think it I was think it resonated a little yeah bit. i think it was intentional absolutely and i do think that the idea of the the secrets that small towns hold is another theme that's very intentional in this movie. I do think it's undercut somewhat by these, the the bookend scenes in the movie, which show the goings on, this kind of wacky goings on in the town, and how everyone knows each other, and they have all these kind of uh, insular relationships that are that are really silly. Uh, and then th- it, they revisiting that at the end, post vampirism, where none of them seem to remember that that these horrible things occurred. They just happen to have woken up covered in blood with, I guess, a number of the townspeople missing because they were killed. I mean, how about that kid who was working as a familiar for the vampire? He's gone now. He got he he got murdered by them. And as he even says before he dies, he isn't a vampire. He just gets to die like a regular person. Right. Uh, I, I, I do feel like they lean a little too heavy on the winky satirical edge part at the very end i understand why they want to wrap it up that way because it's a lot cleaner but all i had were questions about it's like so no one remembers anything when you go to that bingo hall and you see the carnage that was left over. see that wasn't that wasn't my problem at all doug i think that's that's the thing is that i think if you take this movie ignore the fact that it is uh, uh puritanical when it comes to blood and instead put it right next to a movie like dead alive I think none of that stuff is upsetting. All everything you're saying is like, why would you care about? You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's like you're listening to a death metal album and being like, I don't know. There's a lot of double bass on this. Why is there so much double bass? And you're like, because that's the reason we're here. The satirical weird stuff is why people came to the theater. And so, like, I I don't think any of that. I don't is... know if that. I don't know if the satirical stuff is why people rented this movie on video. If you're the kind of person who cares about Fangoria and vampire movies. You probably want it. You were probably here for the vampire. There's a, there's a there's a certain kind of um, caricature departure from reality aspect to some of these '90s films that really works for me, and I think that that was what was going on in this movie. That that is, you know, that there's a part of this that is supposed to remind you of something like Mad Magazine, and it did, and it worked for me. Well, I mean, I guess that's fair. I I think it because of the tone goes all over the place, and sometimes we are meant to take it fairly seriously, particularly if it when it comes to the idea of the priest and what he may or may not have done. Um, I I feel like there is kind of it's difficult to getting into that headspace at the end, where after all of this 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 battle and this thing crashing through the church and stabbing the vampire, uh, then you also get that one scene of the doctor vampire crawling out and making all these different jokes about I don't know, my practice wasn't like, like he just, just all these ridiculous gags. Um, I feel like it kind of undercuts, not that this movie is ever taken too seriously, but certainly the seriousness of its climate. See, this is why I was looking for all the layers with our man, uh, uh, uh thick, not, Johnny Depp is because <laughs> is because of that stuff that there is a layer of 
satire that's layered on top of this movie such that his performance could be part of that. That's why I was looking to that mm. as an explanation for why it's utterly terrible and doesn't make any sense in the movie. Also, one thing that doesn't make any sense I want to bring up is uh, you you in our notes here posted one cover for the movie. There's another cover for the movie that really looks like uh, DeLuise himself is a vampire, and I don't understand it at all. That's what people want, right? They want to be teased that the main character, maybe there was a, a cut scene that involves him. Because one of the things that this movie leans heavily into, and a lot of vampire movies do, is that when they kill the main vampire, everyone else who was turned into a vampire, they go back to their normal selves. So maybe there was some element of that. At least it would have made a little bit more sense than him being so ineffective in that kind of final se- sequence. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, well, let's just go ahead and ask this question here, Doug. Is this itself a hidden? This show is not forgotten gems, by the way. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> but we do ask, you know, do you think this this is a movie people should seek out? And how do you think it compares to our other movie? Now, it's the thing is, yes, I think this movie is undervalued, uh, and it's it's a movie that I don't hear talked about very often. Um, I'd love to see like a release of all three of those Fangoria movies. Uh, with with like some special features and explanations of how these come came together because they were kind of VHS staples in the mid nineties. That said, I do think this movie, while it's good and has a lot to recommend it, I don't think it's nearly as good as The Borrowers. Huh, that's interesting. I I don't know. I I still think mine uh, is a little bit better than The Borrower. I think it's a little bit more entertaining, um, <laughs> and it doesn't have an awkward rape scene. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> there's still awkwardness in this movie to go around, but uh, I can't argue with you at that particular point. I just think that the things that they're trying to do are obviously very different, and I think that this movie, because its lead is so unappealing and um, and the other movie has an alien switching heads every few scenes, I think that the the it has to, my preference has to lean towards the borrower. But Liam, it's not for us to decide. Listeners, if you have seen... Children of the Night or The Borrower, which do you prefer? You can always reach out and let us know uh, via our social media or on uh, the cinemasmorgasbord.com website. Where can people find Cinema Smorgasbord online? Well, they can go to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. They can also go to our website, uh, cinemasmorgasbord.com. And at Cinepunks, they'll find a variety of other shows they can check out as well. Yeah, they certainly can. Of course, you can always follow Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter. That's Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. It's also linked on our uh, social media links on the cinemasmorgasbord.com website. Or again, you can email us directly through that. You can also follow Liam on Twitter, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Or of course, you can follow me on Twitter, at Doug underscore Chili. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And I hope you do, because I need you to tell me, Liam, that The Borrower is a superior movie to Children of the Night. I, I have to say, I was really pleased with the two choices for this particular episode. I agree. Simply because these were two movies that I just did not have a lot of familiarity with, and I had a lot of fun with both of them. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, Liam, uh, this is the month of horror. So, of course, we want to be able to enjoy these underseen horror movies. Yeah, I think it, it was really a lot of fun to get to see two. There's not a lot of times you get to see two horror movies you've never heard of from back in the day yeah. that are actually mm-hmm. worth watching. So that was cool. Uh, I still think mine is better, but it is what it is. I mean, you're wrong, but it is what it is. 
Folks, uh, we, we need to wrap up Cinema Fantastica. We're going to be back very soon with another two uh, genre classics. Good night, everybody. Night, night. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are under when you're down, when you're strange. Come out of the